Hello, my name's Alex, and welcome to Alex Listens. This is a podcast about things like philosophy and politics and race and mental health. A little while ago, I sat down with two very cool, very articulate, very intelligent, and very insightful philosophers from the University of Melbourne. One is called Paul, and the other is called Kelly. Paul Kelly, you know, like the, um, whatever. Paul is a PhD candidate who is just about to finish his PhD. And Paul has a number of areas of interest, like metaphysics and applied ethics and animal ethics, and this cool thing called conceptual engineering, which we spoke about. Uh, Kelly is, well, congratulations, Kelly, um, who very recently was awarded a scholarship as a funded postgraduate student. and Kelly did her honours in this very cool area of something that sounds like, uh, I guess it's social and political philosophy um, and seems to have some links with uh, language and it's about call-ins and call-outs and calling people in and calling people out and that kind of stuff. We spoke about a wide range of things. Um, Paul and Kelly are members of Minorities and Philosophy, the Melbourne University chapter, which is a, I guess it sounds like an organization which is designed to promote diversity and equality in philosophy and to try and make it a more diverse and inclusive and welcoming space for minority groups. And so we we spoke about the work of that organization and we spoke about related themes like inequality in philosophy and the ways in which people are marginalized and underrepresented and suffer at the hands of kind of old you know, traditions in philosophy as a very white, masculine, analytical, hyper-rational, hyper-logical discipline. Um, So we spoke about the nature of philosophy. We spoke about both Paul's and Kelly's interests in philosophy. We spoke about the direction that they hope philosophy is going to go in. We spoke about their relationship to research and how they feel, you know, this project of writing a big thesis, whether they feel like that is a good way to kind of achieve the goals of their work um, and that kind of stuff. So that's probably all you need to know. And hopefully that's convinced you to listen to the episode. Um, Just before I play you the rest of the episode, a few things to note. If you're enjoying Alex Listens or any other stuff that I do, your support would be greatly, greatly appreciated. And you can support the podcast in a number of different ways. Uh, you can become a patron on Patreon. That's a great platform. Click a few buttons and it will allow me to afford to keep running the podcast. Um, There'll be a link in the bio for this episode as well as on my website, which is www.alex.co, A-L-E-K-S dot C-O. Then you just click on the support tab and you're fine. Uh, You can also support me through PayPal or just follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Alex Listens and on Facebook under the same thing, Alex Listens Project. And that's pretty much all. Oh, and I guess one thing you can do if you do neither of them is just share the episode with a friend. Tell someone that you like it. Tell them to listen to it. And tell me what you think what you thought about the episode, who you think I should interview next. Um, You can contact me on social media. That's probably the easiest way. Anyway, thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Bye. Hey, again. Hey. (laughs) Hey, how are you? (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Happy to be here with 
with some cool philosophers who aren't old and and decrepit and and dying. It's important that you say that because people can't see us through the podcast. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're happy to be here, and we'll try our best to be young and exciting and youthful. Thank you. Um, yeah, and how are both of you? What's what's going on? Um, not much at the moment. I'm at a weird time in the year where I'm just waiting to hear back about um, whether I'm getting funding for next year or not to continue research. But um, at the moment, it is nice just hanging out, really, seeing as things are opening back up in Melbourne. So it's nice to be making the most of that. Cool. And I'm at the pointy end of my PhD, which is due in February. Uh, and it happens to be a strange time for philosophy. There happens to be a number of conferences um, that are going on. So giving plenty of talks um, in strange formats because we're not allowed to go overseas, obviously. Um, so, yeah, interestingly busy time. But at the same time, it's kind of nice to be busy given that there's you know, plenty of time to do things being locked up inside. Hmm. And have you, um, I guess one thing that I haven't really thought about too much, but I have thought about in the past 24 hours has been the, the way that philosophy has or may have changed because it's all being done from afar. Um, and I, I actually interviewed this, do you know Graham Priest? Yeah. yeah he's, he's pretty cool. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I, I spoke with him yesterday, which was, he's like the most chill guy ever. I couldn't believe it. He's like, wow, I like Buddhism. Um, uh, and I asked him what he thought about, cause he's in New York, which is like fully, fully fucked at the moment. Um, and I was like, Hey, do you, how's it been, um, doing philosophy from afar? And he was like, nothing has changed we are all very good at being alone. And I was like, ah, oh. but what's it been like? What's it been like for you two? Wait, so before you ask that, like, what are you, what are both of you, what is your like title? Yeah, what is my title? I'll go first because um, I'm lower down than Paul is. So <laughs> I recently just finished my honours degree at the University of Melbourne and I am an incoming master's student there as well. Um, I my research focuses on techniques of social resistance so my honours thesis was on call-outs and call-ins and my master's proposal um, was on shaming and how that is used as a technique to silence and deny subjectivity and hopefully if I can um, if, if I get funding to pursue that then I'll be able to look at how we can resist those kind of techniques. Cool and I'm a, a PhD student at the University of Melbourne working primarily in the social philosophy of language, which includes topics like feminist philosophy, critical race theory, animal ethics. But a part of this new program that people tend to be very interested in at the moment, which is called conceptual engineering, and it kind of takes place at two levels. Uh, at one level, a practitioner of conceptual engineering seeks to kind of evaluate um, our concepts and make normative assessments as to what our concepts should be relative to some aim, aims and goals, right? So a prime example of this is Sally Hasslinger's uh, definitions of um, women, her, or the definition of woman, where she thinks that you should embed the fact that women are impressed in, their de in its definition so that it will help advance pursuits in the project of social justice. Then there's an other side to conceptual engineering, which is the meta-philosophy of it, which says, what are the limits of this form of philosophy? Um, to what extent can we just change the definitions of our terms or concepts? Um, and 
how feasible are these proposals for social justice work? Um, so I see myself as doing the second half of that, not so much offering revised definitions of concepts or terms, but looking at the limits of conceptual engineering as a form of social justice theorizing. Hmm. And has, okay. And has your, do you, is there like some kind of, do you feel at all like there's some kind of gap between what you're expected to do in your PhD by like writing this gigantic thing that is like words and the actual like outcome that you hope, like the, the engineering or the uh, kind of social change that you hope will happen. Is there, yeah. Do you feel like the PhD format is conducive to that kind of change? I would say not. I mean, as much as it would be nice to think of myself as actually doing activist work, there is a sense in which all I'm really doing is making much more complicated things that have already been done by people working on the ground for these sorts of issues. People forever in, in activism have offered definitions of or redefinitions of existing terms and concepts for social pur- uh, justice purposes. They've introduced new concepts and terms for social justice purposes. And I guess all I'm trying to do as someone who might be contributing to this to some extent, whatever minor it may be, is to work out exactly what the limits of that are um, and what are the right sorts of processes we actually need to go through in order to get these revised definitions to get uptake within a community. Um, so in a sense, it's I think it's probably not doing much, but in a sense, I think it's doing something. Um, but I think that that's kind of a useful thing, to, a useful way to think about it because we can get stuck into overly individualistic ways of thinking of activism. But I take myself to be part of a community of of practice, thought, and and activism, I guess. Hmm. Hmm. And Kelly, do you feel like do you feel like your masters is going to be a good platform for you to achieve what you want to achieve with your philosophy? Because I mean, both of you have, I guess, what seems to be unique about both of your goals is that they are they have like they seem to be very clearly attached to real world consequences and actually changing like the way people relate to each other and the way people relate to language. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just, I think it's really funny that like we're expected as people at university to write all this stuff. And often like the, the task of writing is like kind of removed from, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. What, what, how do you feel about it? Um, everything that Paul was saying, I feel that for sure. I think, I hope that my master's project will get me a bit closer to those conversations that are happening, um, you know, on the ground in the activist circles, um, because I always do prioritize, like, making sure I'm engaging with um, public philosophy, whether that be, like, philosophy proper in the public domain or um, long-form essays that local people in activist circles are writing. So I'm hoping to um, embed that as much as possible in my research and engage with that. So hopefully that will offer a nice... um, uh, entry point into those more on the ground everyday activist discussions hmm. yeah okay and now coming back to that initial question that I asked <laughs> how like because obviously activism has had to take a really different shape because of the like mandatory non-togetherness or non-physical togetherness um, as a result of the pandemic so do you feel like your philosophy is both of your projects are going to change or have changed at all and whether your like approach to philosophy has changed Mm. 
Uh, I might talk about my experience in the classes because I was still taking classes this year when everything was on Zoom. Um, I think that offers an interesting point of analysis because in some sense it was much more accessible. Um, You didn't have to go in and kind of feel the pressures or particular norms that are operative in the classroom that can sometimes feel uncomfortable to sit in. Um, But at the same time, those things that make, um, that offer respite from those norms, like hanging out with people after class or doing those extracurricular things that kind of offer a nice space within which you can establish yourself without the presence of like feeling like you have to operate in this hyper-rational way. Um, Not having those things was kind of difficult. So in some sense, good because um, accessibility was increased for people that might feel uncomfortable in the traditional classroom space. But at the same time, um, the loss of those extracurricular activities, I think, is um, regrettable. Hmm. Very balanced analysis. Something to expect from a philosopher. Yeah, I think that I'm I'm roughly in the same kind of position, I guess, in my thought, whereas that there are just benefits and disadvantages to this way of interacting with others in philosophy at a distance. Um, In a sense, it's kind of good for Australian philosophers in particular, given how far away we are from where the action of philosophy, at least in the analytic tradition, is happening in the US and the UK. And so now that there's this move to shift conferences and workshops in particular online, it makes it much easier to talk and network with people who will make a difference to your career and to get your ideas to kind of propagate within the relevant communities and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's one of the good things about it, but it's also bad in the sense that um, you don't get to interact with people. And that seems to be sort of what is most enjoyable about philosophy is the in-person sort of interaction of exchanging of ideas and sort of feeling the kind of passionate responses from them that we're all sort of converging on similar positions or not. Um, So I think that it's both good and bad. But in saying that, I think that even as we move forward and we start to sort of um, catch up with each other again in person, we've probably done a good job of working out different ways in which philosophy can actually take place. Mm. And um, I, so I was just recently invited to give a paper at a strange workshop setup. And the basic setup was that it ran over two weeks. And the first week you just exchanged papers with uh, eight different people. And then, um, yeah, you read that for, or you read those papers for a week. And then the following week there was 40 people who sort of read, read that paper and they were just exchanging questions on Slack, the, the app. And so it was all just done by a particular app. And it was an absolute nightmare to some extent because you just, because you're an Australian, you wake up to a bunch of questions. There's like 40 of them. And so you spend the whole day just writing back to everyone and then you do it again for a week. And I thought that that, um, that was bad in the sense that it was a lot of work. It was good in the sense it was the most productive workshop or conference I've ever been a part of because it actually contributed to making the paper much better Mm. yeah Mm. yeah that's I mean that sounds kind of cool like what was it why was it more productive than other ones is it because in other workshops like things get lost in the interpersonal stuff yeah in other in other workshops or conferences typically the format is that you give a talk and so the, you and you really only get maybe 30 to 45 minutes worth of questions and you the questions are often useful but because the questions really just come about as a result of that person's five minutes of thinking after the talk end, the questions aren't that good typically 
But because of the format of this, where we had a week to read the papers, we had a week to think about sort of objections or responses and or things like that. And then they were really helpful and really strengthening the paper. So I think that's why it was better, but it was definitely more work. And I wouldn't suggest that all philosophy conferences or workshops be like that. Otherwise, we just wouldn't have any time to do anything else, honestly. Hmm. Okay. Um, and I guess one one thing that both of you do together and with other people is map minorities and philosophy. Um, what what is it, and why, and who, and where, and how? Um, yeah, I can say a little bit about MAP, or I guess who we are, and maybe Kelly can say what we've been doing. Yeah. But uh, like MAP originated in the US, I think. Um, that's where its central location is in the sense that we're a chapter of a group that's sort of overseas. Um, and MAP stands for Minorities and Philosophy. Um, and maybe just to give some background um, to why MAP exists in the first place, and that's sort of the state of philosophy for minorities. So it should probably come as no surprise to anyone, but maybe it will. The philosophy is not exactly a nice environment for minorities, um, and there are a number of different reasons for that. And when I say minorities, I mean like the typical suspects, like um, women, people of color, trans people, um, people with disabilities, etc. And so there are a number of issues for minorities in philosophy. One of them tends to be something like pipeline issues, is that um, typically you get quite even enrollments perceived between men and women in undergrad, and then slowly as um, they go through, uh, the women tend to drop off and the men keep going, um, which is sort of contributing to why there's so many more men in philosophy than there are, there are women. Other issues tend to be things like the syllabus. This seems to be... Um, just jam-packed full of white dead philosophers who are men um, going back thousands of years. And so even contemporary contributions by minorities tend to be overlooked in favor of, you know, people like Plato and Aristotle, which of course you should read, but there's a there's a question about whether or not that's what you should be reading on the syllabus. Um, and then there's just like representation issues. People hired in philosophy departments tend to be of a particular color and a particular gender, which is white and men. Um, and so it philosophy gives off the appearance that it's not for certain people and then there's classroom dynamics which philosophy well philosophical dynamics generally which tends to favor being competitive um or tends to favor a particular form of interacting with people in which it's it is uh, not aimed at collaborating or extending or contributing to ideas it's really the incentive structure built around bringing people down um, which can be a nightmare and something you'll have to get used to if you want to go into philosophy, but something that MAP, just bringing it back to MAP, um, aims to change. So we, as MAP, at least at the University of Melbourne, aim to do a number of things, um, which is examine and address issues of minority participation in uh, academic philosophy, uh, and we aim to foster a sense of community and solidarity between minority students and faculty in philosophy, uh, and we provide the opportunity for students to be exposed to and develop an interest in philosophy, particular research, particularly research from underrepresented philosophers. And we allow students to express their own philosophical ideas and um, to a receptive audience. It's basically the aim of our, of our chapter. 
Yeah, so um, recently, or perhaps I'll just introduce the other members of the community who aren't here today. So there is also Sakina Monday, Luara Carlson Karp, and Nandini Shah. Um, recently, we've actually hosted quite a lot of events over the year, which has been great because there has been an increased turnout over Zoom. Um, people who maybe aren't enrolled in philosophy but are interested in it feel more comfortable attending via Zoom. They can just turn their cams off and just have a listen. Um, so we had uh, Associate Professor Karen Jones, who is from the University of Melbourne, talk on monuments recently. Um, and prior to that, we had Dr. Robin Dembroff from Yale, um, and they gave a talk on one of the papers that we'd res- read as a part of our tra- sorry, transgender reading group um, that we ran through MAP. Um, and who else did we have? We had um, phenomenology person. Oh, um, Helen, Helen No from Deakin University. Um, and also Dr. Lauren Gower. Yeah. Yeah, um, who gave a talk on indigenizing philosophy. So it was great too. So that's what, I guess that's what we're sort of aiming to do is look at the areas of philosophy that we think that have been overlooked or just not given a platform and to give those philosophies um, a platform within MAP, but also to give philosophers that are probably going to struggle to get through the, um, into the profession um, permanent, as, you know, permanent academics, just a space to develop their own thinking on these topics um, and to be listened, I guess, with charity and with openness and, um, you know, knowing that there's someone at the other end whose aim is to understand and to contribute sort of fruitfully to, um, to conversation. Um, and I think so far it's been great. We've received a, sort of a lot of positive feedback, especially for our trans philosophy reading group. Um, yeah, uh, which uh, in the world at the moment, there happens to be quite a hot political topic mm. and um, we want to make it clear where our, um, where our allegiances lie. So, yeah. It's been a really sort of great place and we've been doing wonderful things. Hmm. And yeah, I one thing that's really curious about philosophy is that uh I mean from before before I studied philosophy, I I guess yeah, there were two competing ideas of the discipline that I had. One was like you know, like Sally Hasslinger talks about like schemas. Um, and I guess a schema is like a set of rules or ideas or words or people or places that we associate with everything in order to understand everything. Um, and so I guess my schema for philosophy from the outside or the schema that came to me immediately was one of like the old dead white bearded Greek person. But at the same time, um, I feel like maybe this is something that's unique to like the inner North of Melbourne, or maybe it's something that like, maybe it's just part of the aura of philosophy, but I kind of, I, I envision philosophy to be a whole lot more radical than most other disciplines because of like, yeah, how I understood it to be this, quest for new ideas and it almost it yeah from the outside before starting it seemed to be it seemed to have like progressivism built into it by virtue of its being this perpetual journey towards new things um but evidently that just isn't the case um yeah and i i recently wrote an essay on and spent a lot of time reading about um 
yeah, underrepresentation of groups in philosophy. Uh, and yeah, was very upset by what the statistics showed, um, like the kind of chronic underrepresentation of every minority group. Um, but also the, the, yeah, what, what seems to be a really challenging road ahead to redefine what philosophy, uh, how philosophy is understood and how to make it more accessible. Um, so how do you feel like, how do you feel like philosophy? How do both of you feel like philosophy is being reshaped through map? Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Good question. Um, so I think what you were saying before was interesting about how there's like a, progress- a progressivism built into philosophy that we don't actually see um, by virtue of the numbers of minority students who are actually engaged in the discipline. I think part of that is to do with like these norms of being hyper-rational and, um, and not being emotional and things like that in the classroom. And in order to qualify as hyper-rational, um, you often have to show yourself as conversant in pre-existing theory. And that means engaging with all kinds of uh, thinkers from the canon. But the canon is dominated mainly by white men. So naturally, um, particular interests aren't properly represented, which actually stifles your ability to qualify as um, properly philosophical um, because there isn't a pre-existing canon that you can draw on within which to properly articulate your ideas. And I think that the work that MAP is doing helps to kind of combat that norm in particular because we are platforming those thinkers that do give voice to those ideas such that students who attend our talks can then return to the classroom and um, cite those speakers that we have invited as a way to um, uh, make themselves more legitimate in the classroom while talking about those ideas that previously might have been seen as um, not philosophical in, um, by virtue of those norms of hyper-rationality. I, yeah, I um, agree 100% with what Kelly has to say. I think that as much as philosophy gives off the appearance that it is um, progressive, it's in fact quite conservative, um, not just for the reasons that Kelly mentioned, but also in the sense that um, the nature of philosophy or the norms that are operative within it um, tend to favor a kind of careful methodology um, of which prevents people or protects them from counterexamples or objections. I mean, that's sort of the nature of it, is that it can't progress as fast as it needs to in virtue of the fact that it's constantly having to battle itself in order to move forward, right? There are very few pioneering philosophers. You can sort of name them throughout history, but you'll be able to, you know, list, basically list all of them, and I guess within like 20 top philosophers in the last 100 years. But philosophy primarily made up of like objectors. There's someone who gives a paper, and then there is hundreds of people who want to say why that paper's not very good, right? And you can see how that stifles progress because it's saying we're going to get stuck on this point and we're going to sort of try our best to sort of bring this point down to the point where, you know, we're going to look great for doing it and it's going to help advance our careers, um, and, but it's going to stop philosophy from moving forward on certain topics. So I think philosophy has the capacity to be progressive. It's just mm-hmm. that it's in need of new norms, of uh, which says the... What good philosophy consists of is not just being someone who objects to certain ideas, but being the kind of people that can extend ideas, that can reinforce them, um, that can sort of make use of them in different ways and all that sort of stuff. But we're just not there yet. And I guess to bring that back to MAP, I think MAP kind of fosters an environment that 
is trying to is geared toward those sorts of norms where it says we're not sort of in the business of bringing down philosophy unless it's you know bad philosophy like i know predominantly white male philosophy but it's progressive in the sense that it tries to extend the ideas of philosophers who have been otherwise marginalized within the philosophical community yeah hmm. yeah and both of you touched on something that is yeah that has like a really i guess it, it, it doesn't seem to be called controversial by anyone but minorities and that is the like culture of hyper rationality in philosophy and that's i guess yeah you were talking before about um that uh workshop you went to um and i guess one thing that philosophy does well and one thing that makes philosophy uh i don't know a robust discipline is that there is this culture of like pouncing and being like ha fuck you like you're wrong about this um and then Kelly, before you were talking about the importance of having, of being able to draw on diverse scholarship that maybe relates to you and that isn't reinforcing, you know, the schema of philosophy being this like ultimately white and masculine discipline. Um, yeah. And I, I don't, I've tried to imagine a, I've tried to imagine my university experience i've only done a bachelor of arts um, in philosophy but i've tried to imagine that without the culture of like presenting an argument and then receiving criticism Um, and i've tried to imagine how that could be done in a way that doesn't that isn't like stifling or upsetting for people who are talking about things that are intimately connected that they're intimately connected to um i guess before we went on before we started recording i was saying that you know one topic that's very sensitive for me is colonialism and you know philosophy related to that um like recently i was reading i wrote i did this ethics of capitalism class and wrote an essay uh about these philosophers who were trying to identify the specific wrong of colonialism um and yeah, it took me a few days to realize that like the reason why I was feeling so like dismal and like sluggish was because I was reading all of this like really weird scholarship by like white people about like colonialism as an abstracted thing. <laughs> it's like as like this abstracted practice. But yeah, anyway, I've said so many uh different things, but I guess the, the the thing that I'd like to spend a bit of time on is, and this seems closely connected to both of, of your areas of interest, um, but the, I guess I'm, I'm uncertain about what an, what an inclusive philosophy or what a, what an improved philosophy discipline, um, or what a more welcoming and less or maybe like a benevolently hyper rational if that can even exist if a benevolently hyper rational philosophy department or practice would exist what that would actually look like so either of you have any thoughts on that Mm. um perhaps just extending what i was saying earlier about making space for people to talk about things that might on the face of it seem like overly emotional and therefore like 
won't qualify as rational. And it's like, I don't know, in feminist philosophy for women who are doing it, it is often emotional to do that. As you were saying when you were reading those papers about colonialism, like it is a lot of emotional work to be um, going through that literature and writing on it. So it's like acknowledging that kind of labor that is involved in those kinds of things um, and and adjusting um, according to that acknowledgement in ways that um, uh, validate people who do have an emotional response to those situations, I think is one part of it. Um, and challenging that combative environment. I mean, all too often we see like tutors kind of getting almost I don't want to say delighted, but like really that they, they take the fact that students are getting quite heated in debate as an indicator of them being a good tutor. Whereas to me, it's like that just indicates the total opposite. If people are getting that aggressive and like cutting each other off. That's like that's just a night, a nightmarish situation to be in. And um, yeah, I think people are um, disheartened and unlikely unlikely to contribute if they anticipate that that's the way the classroom will go particularly if they're talking about ideas that hit close to home for them it's very easy for men to um aggressively debate like i remember one time i gave a presentation on my paper on gaslighting and these two men just started like um aggressively debating the topic between themselves and i was like it's so easy for you guys to just tap into this and have this kind of response to it. Whereas that was, um, it was very draining to write for one. And then also to discuss in front of these people who then don't, it doesn't really cost them anything to engage in it in the way that they did. Um, yeah. So acknowledging those kind of dynamics for sure is a starting point. Yeah. And I agree. And maybe just to echo some of the things that Kelly was mentioning, it seems to me that rationality isn't the problem, but rather the problem is what rationality means in philosophy. Mm. Um, and so I just think there needs to be some um, revision of the standards of assessing what counts as good philosophy at the moment, uh, because what counts as good philosophy is these sorts of things like being competitive, being combative, um, trying to prove that the other person that you're speaking to is less intelligent than you are, or they've made a mistake and that they need to correct it, and you're the one responsible for bringing that to light. Um, so I think that the how to, re- how to revise these standards or what standards we should be using I think there are some like uh, maybe some heuristics or things that we could use to make philosophy um, a little bit easier, which is um, the aim of entering into philosophical conversation shouldn't be to criticize or to, um, well, you know, criticism is not a bad thing, but the, but the aim shouldn't be to bring someone down. The aim should be to enter conversation with the goal of understanding their perspective, of understanding what's being said first and foremost. And then there's a sense in which um, what one should be doing, at least to my mind, is trying their best in some sense to read the interlocutor in the most charitable way, try to extend um, their ideas in, in sort of kind of a charitable fashion, um, and sort of aim to just sort of like contribute positively to their project, rather than trying to find ways of making oneself look better in that context as a, you know, by making uh, their interlocutor look bad. But in saying all this, <clears throat> I think that this is assessing or trying to work out what standards f- uh, we need for philosophy is actually a job for philosophy. Um, and I would like to see more work being done on on you know answering this question of what should count as good philosophy, which I think is a question of conceptual engineering, but that <laughs> should be no surprise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think, yeah, both of you gave really thorough answers so thank you that was that was really cool um yeah and i think one 
one issue that I flagged is that uh, it almost seems like the challenge for the um, like culturally and socially literate philosopher is made really difficult by like I don't know poor education prior to philosophy because I guess there's like a whole lot of cognitive gymnastics that is that people are expected to do or there's there's a whole lot of stuff that needs to change that is probably more difficult to change when it's being done like when someone's 18 like yeah because I feel I feel like the competitiveness and the kind of grappling like the violent grappling with the interlocutor is i guess i I almost feel like i was taught to do that um in in high school and especially as a man um i feel like i was really like my i guess yeah one less fortunate thing about having um about my dad is that he's like yeah i guess he he values like this idea of the stoic like man who is you know like robust and strong and like doesn't like yeah and i think fortunately i was raised by my mom (laughs) um and she's like yeah a really wonderful um person and i think bestowed me with a really good set of like social skills um but i don't feel like i don't feel like i was i feel like that's yeah before philosophy um i think i was like i could have been a real dick in like tutorials and stuff um and i think it, it may have just been a maturity thing um but yeah i don't know what like yeah because i like i'm sure that i think philosophy is at least in my in when I was that essay that I was talking about before, where I wrote about this kind of stuff, it seems like philosophy is the worst discipline in terms of like philosophers think they are the most intelligent. Like they think they're more intelligent than other disciplines. They think that there is more innate talent required to do good philosophy. And there are all of these like really obnoxiously arrogant features that philosophers think they have like, they were born with. Um, Yeah. And so, yeah do you like how much yeah this is a hard question like yeah how much of it is like is are we just being socialized poorly in melbourne or or in the west or in the world yeah i mean i can only speak to my experience which is just doing philosophy in melbourne um the whole way through but i did um do it in high school and i think what was emphasized there was probably the, the principle of charity, the, the idea of that was actually quite big in the classroom there. And then I noticed that that wasn't as big when I went into first year philosophy classes. Um, so, and I think this is also exacerbated by like, when you're being introduced to the literature, it is often framed as like dualism versus monism, because you don't really have the conceptual toolkit to go in between the nuances, like within the same position. So it is very much like position A versus position B. So I think that sets us up to think that it's like, it is this combative thing, like someone's got to win. Um, and you kind of begin to move past that point as you go along, which as you mentioned, might be a maturity thing. Um, but yeah, I think 
that was my experience at the Melbourne situation anyway. Yeah, I think I have an interesting experience because my dad was a philosopher at, uh, in Melbourne. Um, and I remember distinctively this experience with him where I think in some sense he was like training me to be prepared for philosophy. Um, and this is when I had just gone into undergraduate philosophy. And I remember that they were arguing over something and I can't remember, I can't remember what it was, but it must have been a metaphysics because that's what I was interested in once upon a time. And he just went to town on me. He just like he really kicked it up a few gears and was and and reduced me to tears. And he was like, "If you want to make it in philosophy, this is what you've got to realize: it's a cutthroat business, and you've got to be able to deal with this." And there's a sense in which, because you know, in the time that he was doing philosophy, it was like that. I mean, he came from a time where um, what was really in fashion was this very, very kind of formal philosophy of language that was almost impenetrable to sort of um to enter into and only the smartest people i say that in quotation marks um were able to sort of discuss these sorts of topics and he was a part of it and then i got into philosophy at melbourne uh, at monash and i realized it wasn't like that it wasn't actually as bad as he thought it would um, that he you know thought it was it was still bad in the sense that there was primacy placed on being competitive or combative but it wasn't in the sense that people were, you know, out for each other. Um, so I think there's a sense in which it's getting better. But I want to say that I think that's a distinctively Melbourne thing. As bad as Melbourne is at the moment, relative or, com- you know, compared to the rest of the world, mm. it's probably pretty inclusive just in virtue of the fact that we tend to have a greater interest in social topics. Um, and I guess we're typically at the forefront of, like, um, theorizing about how things could be relative to some standards of like uh, morality or you know social acceptability and all sorts of things like that. So I think that Melbourne is pretty good, um, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be socialised in the philosophy community in places of which are still pretty cutthroat. Um, I imagine because I imagine I was a dick when I was in philosophy classes as well. Like you know, in virtue of that was the that was the rules, and coming from you know training from my dad, um, and I can kind of th- remember being a dick in classes and being like, it was a dick in different ways. It was like the the public dick, <laughs> which was like, yeah, I'm going to be an asshole in, in class and be the kind of person I'm like, oh no, you're wrong. Here's these reasons, but also that kind of private dickiness which is like i'm so much smarter than everyone else so if everyone just realized just how smart i was oh, you wouldn't even begin to argue with me and then you do come to be like i don't know whether this is like dunning kruger effect type stuff where it's like at one point the less you know the the better you think you are and then eventually the more you know the more you realize how much of an idiot um you are especially when it comes to philosophy so i think i just kind of got to that point quickly when i started sort of like doing philosophy more and I don't know whether I'm coming up now on the other end. Now that I know a bit more about it, really, I'm going to sort of get to the dickiness point again. But I hope not. I hope not. That's my that's my goal in life is not to be a dick. I will just say a little bit about Melbourne University to clarify. I think a lot of the um, a lot of the socialization I had there, a lot of the faculty actually um, did a lot of work to remove those kind of things that people carry into the classroom. So most of those problematic dynamics, I think, were just carried in by students who have this stereotype of what it means to be a philosopher. And more often than not, almost like 90% of the time, I want to say, the faculty did the work of kind of um, reining that in, like uh, particularly Karen Jones. Um, 
showing that like why those things just aren't true and in fact that they are harmful and that we shouldn't be doing them so yeah i just wanted to clarify that yeah and that you don't need to um you don't need to be like that in order to succeed in philosophy that's one thing i think karen probably taught me is that you can just be a good person have some kind of future-oriented thinking about what philosophy should be like and actually embody that way of thinking and still do well and still be respected and still be one of the best, you know, most prominent philosophers um, in the world. So, yeah, which is a nice lesson to learn. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I also feel like staff at Melbourne Uni did a really good job of uh, like holding up some behavior or like reinforcing good social relations and like yeah um one one teacher who i'm not going to name would like in in a really like funny way they would like invite people who had like obnoxious or offensive ways of socializing to talk and it was it was really fun because the teacher would just like kind of egg them on and everyone everyone but this person would be like shut the fuck up like you've got to stop this is horrible but yeah and i I thought that was like a really clever way of showing like how bad how like or, or like how how some ways of like being in the classroom and just like not good and like not not yeah welcoming or friendly or like inclusive um hmm. there's an interesting question about what to do about that i mean i've been struggling with this question for quite a long time and trying out different things but what i've come to settle on um, which i find found useful but not ultimately like um, completely get rid of the problems of philosophy is that I send around an email um, at the start of every semester before class that really just says, um, uh, gives statistics and empirical literature on differences in conversational attitudes between genders, which there's just heaps of literature on, especially in the classroom, um, and make it clear that you know it's not something that people do consciously. It really is going to be a product of the internalization of particular schemas, as you say, which sort of provides these sort of action scripts depending on what gender you are um, and how you exercise uh, your gender roles in the classroom. Um, and that's not to be taken personally, but it's something that I will call out if I need to. And it's been received both positively and negatively. I remember there's been multiple occasions where very angry men you know, shaking, saying, hey, I don't think you should bring gender into the classroom. Um, and I say, well, gender is in the classroom, and that's just sort of an unfortunate fact that we have to deal with. But at the same time, I've received plenty of emails from other minorities, over minorities have been said, thank you, I needed to hear that. I needed to know that this classroom is safe for me to actually interact, that the teacher's on my side, um, and that I'm going to be able to express myself in a way that's going to be heard positively. So I think that that's sort of, that's helped, but um, it can be hard when norms get, because norms get established so quickly in the classroom. Mm. You know, the first week is basically where the where it all happens. Is that you know someone starts talking, they start dominating conversation for the class, and then now there's an expectation from basically everyone that this person's going to be the one that's going to say everything for the whole semester. And so combating that is like a really difficult thing. 
Um, and you can, you know, there are ways around it. You can do small groups and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that can get you to somewhere to some extent. But um, but no, it would be good to work out better heuristics to be able to deal with um, bad classroom norms. Hmm. Hmm. Um, what's teaching been like? Oh, from the other side. Um, yeah, from the other side of, I guess, where Kelly was. Uh, teaching has been interesting. Um, I teach philosophy, race, and gender. Um, and I... Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, uh, yeah, teach philosophy of race and gender. And in previous semesters, it's been kind of interesting in the sense that people have shown an interest in the sorts of topics. And of course they should because it sort of affects their everyday lives. But what I was surprised to see this semester was just how involved and interested the students were and how every most of them rocked up every week. There was jammed classes uh, for the whole the whole semester, um, and the grades were good. I wasn't sort of being lenient to any extent, um, so I don't know what that. I don't know whether people are just bored, and they're like, "Yes, I need to go and you know to class, and this is just going to fill in some of the hours of my day, and I'm just naturally going to do well because I'm going to dedicate more time to doing this." Or whether there's something in the kind of socio-political air at the moment where people are just interested in these sorts of topics: what is race, what is gender, um, you know. People are interested in kind of issues surrounding trans identity, Black Lives Matter, um, indigenous, uh, whether uh, indigenous justice claims can be understood in a racialized framework, all these sorts of things like that. So I don't know, maybe it's just sort of like a healthy mixture of both. But I've enjoyed it, but I would rather be in class. Mm. I'd rather be sort of there, being able to gauge exactly what the levels of interest are and adjusting my behavior accordingly. Mm. And Kelly, do you also want to do like do you want to be a like a philosopher, like a like a teacher philosopher? Yeah, I'm. Look, I'm not sure. I think my my attitude is I'll just do it for as long as I enjoy it, um, and I am able to do it. But I think, um, yeah, I find a lot more satisfaction writing public articles than I do ever. Um, finishing a philosophy essay but in saying that i haven't gotten to the point where i've had published philosophy articles so maybe that will be comparable when that happens um if that happens uh but yeah i'm i'm really not sure mm. i think um being involved in like a local arts community maybe is more important to me ultimately but we'll see mm. Mm. yeah i also don't know mm. uh yeah, I think teaching teaching looks like a cool job. Mm. At least the yeah, I think it's a really it's a I'm, I'm sure it'd be a really nourishing responsibility. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think that that has been like one major pull towards like actually thinking about doing academic philosophy. Um, but also, I guess like yeah, this podcast has been super fun mm. like talking yeah. to people um about their work um like it's yeah philosophy is so cool like yeah. it's so like dorky to say but it, it actually is so cool um yeah okay um maybe we'll we'll kind of change topic a little bit yeah. um unless there was anything anything that either of you felt was left out there about map or um mm. I don't think so. Philosophy is cool. And it is dorky to say, but I think when you, you know, 
come to accept that that's the kind of person you are. You get the most out of it. Um, yeah, because it, it is one of those things, and I don't, I don't know who said this, but, you know, this thought's sort of been expressed a few times where it's, you can kind of talk for hours about it without, without actually knowing anything, mm. right? It's because it really is just a, you know, a set of skills mm. and where you can take any topic and you can dissect it almost you know, infinitely. Um, and, you know, if you're at the other end, I mean, if you're in conversation with someone who has a similar interest to you, you can just talk forever. And it's a really nice way of bonding with someone. And this podcast, it seems like, is a good way to do that as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really my main hope with both for myself and for people listening to it, that they'll realize that, like, not that, like, that, you know, necessarily they need to, like, have more philosophy in their life, but that it's really enjoyable to, like, talk like this with Mm -hmm. people. And, like, I think is a really, like, has has been for me, like, a really significant and important type of bond formation with people. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like, yeah, the style of conversations that people have and the types of, I guess, uh, like conversation styles that people use when like talking respectfully to each other about philosophy stuff is like really beautiful. And I don't think I've experienced in when talking in other ways. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people would benefit from like... Uh, I don't know if it if they'd benefit from acknowledging that like maybe you know what they're talking about or the way they're talking is this is like pretty meta but the way they're talking about is about things is in like a more philosophical way but yeah it seems like at least for me it was really helpful to acknowledge that that was I don't know what was going on but anyway <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and I guess maybe this is like a convenient segue to move on to some meta philosophy stuff which I'd really like to talk to both of you about Mm. um maybe the first question that i'll ask is like maybe a before and after kind of thing so like how did you feel about what did you think philosophy was before you became a philosopher and how do you feel about it now that you are a philosopher both of you Mm. um i'll go first i feel like i've come full circle kind of so i guess like in the in the beginning it was very much just like I had thoughts that I really wanted to explore and I was doing it in my like 15 year old self's journals and then I moved schools to study philosophy and as I kind of moved um, through the VCE and Really? You actually changed school? Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> um, uh, so, and, and then like those ideas of like what it had to look like, like, like being hyper-rational and all those things kind of infused my idea of what it meant to be a philosopher and like as that happened I like stopped contributing in class. Um, I, I had a I was saying what I thought I was supposed to say as opposed to what I really wanted to say. And now I think that I've kind of gotten like um, a whole heap of support from a number of people through the last few years. I'm at that position now where it's like I am just kind of going back to what I want to write about in my journals. Um, and I'm studying that like within um, the framework of an academic setting now. So it has gone from that like just doing what I want to do and what feels important um, to the framework that I have to move through the world, um, back through what I think I have to say, and then back to that original position. And I think that's been really nice seeing philosophy as something that is like enriching to my um, 
like it's enriching and like a creative process that kind of um, negotiates and broadens how I move through the world. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question about what I thought philosophy was. Um, I suppose with respect to how people undertook the discipline, I didn't really have much of an idea other than, you know, people got together and had conversations. But there was a sense in which there was a set of topics that I thought philosophy was about. Mm. Um, and that followed me actually quite intimately through my undergraduate studies. Um, and there's a name for people um, who think of philosophy in this way, and they're called lemmies. Um, language, epistemology, metaphysics. That's what um, I thought philosophy was. It was just um, this hardcore philosophy of language is hardcore epistemology and hardcore metaphysics. And that was it. And anything else was, you know, you were bordering on other kind of like social sciences or whatever, but they were kind of intellectually inferior compared to the gold standard of Lemmy's. Um, is Lemmy's like your term or is no, that, no, no, is that's that actually... it's, it's, no, it's used in philosophy. Um, <laughs> it and sounds like insulting. It, it's, I was going to insult yeah, twang I think it's it. meant to be. I oh, think really? it's meant to be um, in, insulting. Um, Can you so, use it as an adjective? Like, you yeah, yeah. bloody lemmy. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I think maybe someone did use it in that way to me when I was doing uh, my master's in um, in uh, Mariology and the philosophy of mathematics um, and was like, oh, you know, what are you doing? Um, you lemmy. <laughs> you know, there are so many better and important topics that you could be looking at. It's not as if they were doing important and better topics, but they thought that I could be doing something different. Um, but that's what I thought philosophy was. I thought it was just thinking about these sorts of things like, you know, what's the nature of kind of, you know, definite descriptions or, you know, what's the nature of parthood relations or what's the nature of, you know, justified true belief. Um, and so I thought, I guess my understanding of philosophy was just a range of topics. Um, and then... I don't know what happened, but I think it was post-masters when I realized, God, I don't want to be a part of this club anymore, just people thinking about these sorts of topics, partly because I didn't know what the rules of the game were. It seemed to me that there would just happen to be these figures that people admired, and you had to have your ideas that were more or less similar to theirs. And I thought, oh, God, I can't be doing this. So I think I had one of those sort of like existential moments where I was like, what am I doing with my life? I cannot be the kind of person that just thinks about you know, what does it take for two objects to compose some further object? It's like, well, look, even it doesn't matter if I have an answer to that. If I'm walking in, you know, to a table, I'm going to go around it because there's something there. Um, so I think that that's what I thought philosophy was until there was some kind of turn in my thinking about what philosophy could be. And it just so happened to kind of um, correspond or coincide with the general social turn in philosophy which was you had these major figures like Sally Hasslinger, professor of MIT, one of the best program in philosophy in the world, apparently, um, who was doing feminist philosophy um, and who was being taken seriously because she came from analytic metaphysics as well. Um, and then all of a sudden it became super popular and then there was epistemic injustice stuff and that became popular and everyone was doing epistemic injustice. And so I think I just got lucky in the sense that my shift in understanding about what what topics of philosophy were coincided with um, this kind of turn in people thinking about what philosophy should be or what sorts of topics we should be exploring. Hmm. And do you see... Uh, it's, the weird thing for me about metaphilosophy is that 
at least whenever I whenever I try and define or when, whenever I try and think about my definition of philosophy, it it keeps changing, which is cool, mm. but also frustrating because um, actually no, it's not frustrating. I think it's really nice, and I think the way I define philosophy often reflects where I'm at in my life and what what my interests are. Um, yeah, I think I've yeah when when i when i was telling both of you what i was interested in i think like all of those things would have coincided with me defining philosophy as like the task of like this mm. or, like ethics or like existentialism or something yeah uh and i really hope that i actually don't know that um like paul you were talking about the lemmies and i think i one of my like greatest fears in life is that um, I will do things not because I'm enjoying them, but because like, I don't know, I've been told to do them or I think they're valuable or something like that. Um, and I think for a while I slipped into like, uh, what was I, what was I doing in philosophy? Um, I think it was like weird applied ethics. And I think I really got into weird applied ethics purely because I thought it had like great social utility, mm. not because I was like, especially interested in it. Um, and I hope that, yeah, <laughs> weird point, but I hope that like that people actually think about their reasons for doing particular things in philosophy. Um, sounds like both of you have done a really good job with like navigating the weird path of infinite possibilities in terms of studying infinite different things and choosing things that you really care about um so congratulations (laughs) (laughs) but you can get sucked in i mean as much as you can have a clear idea of what it is you want to get out of philosophy or what you want philosophy to do for you you can get sucked in and become institutionalized Mm -hmm. you can get caught up in a language game which just happens to be a language game within philosophy and not something that maybe corresponds to the sorts of interests that you actually have Right. And I, and I have these moments when I'm doing my thesis and I think, I know what I want to say. I know what it is I want to get out of this in the sense of I want to make a contribution to our understanding of what it might take to combat oppressive social structures, which is targeting the sorts of concepts that undergird our practices or whatever. But then I catch myself, you know, writing a chapter and thinking, God, this is getting so technical. And I don't know why it's technical. And I think it's only technical because I need to engage with literature that already exists out there. Um, and so scholarship itself can be like a real, you know, roadblock or a hurdle for one to get over in order to make sure that they're like are able to do the things they want to do, but at the same time play the game so you're taken seriously in the academy. Hmm. Hmm. And have there been just on the topic of meta philosophy? Have there been any uh, philosophers who's like? If we if we th- if we move on to meta philosophy as an actual thing that philosophers do, mm. um, have there been any types like I think uh, uh, Kelly, you were saying that there was some pragmatic stuff that you are interested in, or um, yeah, I think I'm interestingly placed to answer this question, given that I'm a part of this broader discussion about what philosophy is um there was at least in the analytic 
tradition, um, an understanding that philosophy was just conceptual analysis. It really was just um, looking at the sorts of concepts that we use to represent aspects of reality uh, and trying to find necessary and sufficient conditions for them. Uh, and that notoriously failed every time. I don't think there's ever been an occasion where anyone's ever offered um, successful necessary and sufficient conditions. And so that kind of spelled the end for this kind of Fregean program of what conceptual analysis looked like. Um, and then there was kind of this movement into something like, um, I guess, like descriptivist philosophy of language or the ordinary language tradition, where it was just sort of looking at our ordinary concepts, um, the sorts of concepts that we actually use out there in the world and trying to work out what they mean and whatnot. What I'm a part of now, which is a kind of interesting um, response to how philosophy is being conceived in the past, is that we're not looking to analyze concepts for the purposes of understanding what they mean um, or to, you know, what they refer to or anything like that. We're looking at concepts in the sense of what they could be or what they should be, given our aims and goals. If our aims and goals to solve, um, you know, social injustices, we should think about the concepts that we have right now and ask, do they um, help us in the project of advancing pursuits in, the pro in social justice? And so people have done that for gender concepts, for race concepts. They say, look, we don't bother looking at the ordinary concepts of race and gender. They're not going to help you um, for feminist inquiry or critical race theory. What we should be doing is theorizing concepts that we should have that's going to help us um, in these projects. So it's a real forward-looking type philosophy in, in a way that I think previous philosophy was really backwards-looking in the sense it was just analyzing our concepts. But now this is like analyzing our concepts for the purposes of some forms of inquiry. Um, and that's what, you know, that's conceptual engineering or the meta-philosophy of conceptual engineering is like that. And I think that it's incredibly fruitful, has its kind of roots in history of, like of, of the Vienna Circle, um, but now is sort of very popular. Um, people like Sally Hassan is doing it, David Chalmers is doing it, um, and other famous people are doing it. Um, so I think that what you'll see is that that's probably what philosophy will look like. A good deal of it will look like there's some pushback but what we'll see is that it's really not about the concepts that we're trying to describe it's about the concepts that we are prescribing in theory and implementing out in the wild mm -hmm. seeing how we can best affect um, have practical effects on the world mm -hmm. and have either of you seen like have have either of you seen your philosophy or your study of philosophy manifest in the world in any cool ways like uh, Kelly have have has your thesis has did that really influence your behavior mm. um, yeah yeah um, I think so I've pitched the ideas of uh, call outs and call ins that I proposed in that to like many different people and and they seem to buy it and find it helpful so that's so that was exciting mm. um, but that's really cool. Yeah, I I like to think that the philosophy that I do is kind of like those questions that arise just as I move through the world. And I feel a kind of friction um, between uh, an understanding or lack of that I have of something. And I just kind of want to chase that down a bit more. Um, so in that sense, it always kind of does feel steeped in the world that I encounter. Um, but yeah, not a whole lot of instances of seeing um, what I've written manifest in some exciting way in the mm. real world yeah uh yeah i guess um 
there's a sense in which there's like an obvious answer to that question, which is I, I guess a few of my publications have been, um, uh, you know, discussed in the whatever communities they're interested in these sorts of stuff. Um, uh, so it, there is a sense in which, yeah, my philosophy has had kind of an impact on, on people's behavior, but with respect to sort of how I navigate my life, yeah, I think it probably has. It probably makes me keenly aware of just how important language actually is. Because for many people, I take it that um, what justice requires of us is going to be things like material change. And that's obviously true. There's got to be some redistribution of material resources or perhaps a complete overhaul of the structures in which we exist in. But what people don't realize is that, well, maybe they do, but not to sort of the extent maybe they, they need to, is how much material reality depends on our discursive and linguistic practices and how much resistance and change in language is actually required for any material change to actually take place. Right? We need to be able to understand possibilities before we can actually bring them about. And those possibilities, are, our understanding of those possibilities will be constrained by our language. And so that's kind of where I'm, I'm like, be careful. I mean, and which is just the kind of, I think, movement in kind of, at least in a North activism these days, is that we're very quick to police language and all that sort of stuff. So people are already kind of aware of it. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, I think, what I've noticed is that language is incredibly important. Um, and to ignore it is to sort of ignore a lot of the social justice work we actually want to achieve. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And is there is there, are there any other disciplines that are also doing this kind of stuff outside of philosophy? Like is there, um, I don't know, any cool like, yeah, are there any collaborations that you're aware of? I would say that the primarily people who are interested in this type of philosophy or this type of problem, um, the relationship between language and materiality, is, um, is going to be in the social sciences. It has been in sociology for a long time. They've just called it different things. Um, what have they called it in the past? So, so people like Jack Balkan would have called it cultural software. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so people cool. like um, uh, some other people in sociology will call it schemas or schemata or scripts or things like that, um, which are not themselves a language. Language is just sort of the linguistic representation of these cognitive structures, or cognitive and affective structures. But that's the thing people have tended to be targeted throughout kind of history of sociology. There's also an empirical social psychology at Melbourne um, uh, run by Nick Haslam and a bunch of undergrads there who are working on concept creep. And But they have a kind of negative perspective on concept creep, which they think... What's concept creep? Concept creep is just the idea that the extension of our concepts or the things to which our concepts refer is changing through linguistic usage changing through time. So um, if you look at the concept of abuse, once upon a time, it probably just denoted something like physical forms of abuse. Now it's crept into kind of the emotional domain. Now we talk about emotional abuse. Um, same can be said for gaslighting and a bunch of other sort of social and political concepts. They are more worried about the concept creep than I am. They're worried that it's uh, devaluing or in some sense diluting uh, the utility of these concepts for social justice purposes. So they're saying we shouldn't change the concepts of like abuse because now we're not going to be able to pick out the really serious forms of abuse that we should be picking, be able to pick out. I think that that's worry is 
there's something to the worry, but I think that it shouldn't be overestimated. Language, it's better that we have a concept like emotional abuse to pick out existing injustices than not. Mm. Um, so that's my position on that. But that's another one that's at Melbourne Uni as well. So. That's really cool. Hmm. Um, yeah, right. And where to from here in your in both of your philosophies? What? So both of you have upcoming projects. You're doing your PhD. You're hopefully going to be doing your master's mm-hmm. or are doing your master's or will be. I will know this time next week. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so fingers That's pretty crossed. soon. Yeah. And what are you going to be doing? Yeah, so um, I have recently uh, gotten really into the critical phenomenology stuff, which um, is kind of uncharacteristic of me. I was very much in the um, social analytic sort of on, on that trajectory for the past few years and did my honours like in that area. And when I did the existentialism and phenomenology subject in undergrad, it was the worst subject I ever did in terms <laughs> of my marks. Um, so I had a kind of sour taste in my mouth about it. But then I did a, um, a close reading of Merleau-Ponty as a part of an honours subject and really enjoyed it. And I think it just has a lot to offer for the kind of um, social analysis that I'm interested in doing because it does capture that sort of like ineffable first personal sense or at least allows you to discuss um, how how ordinary analyses maybe miss that and why that is going to be important when we discuss these kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, uh, a return to that for me, which is exciting because it is a new um, – it's not new literature by any means, but um, it, in terms of Meloponte or whatever. But um, for, for me, all of that stuff is new and that's exciting. So looking at um, shame within the context of that and how that matches up with other understandings that we have in more recent social analytic philosophy. Um, yeah, I think that's where to from here for me. Uh, and I'm, uh, I guess after my PhD, I'm going to undertake a project in um, critical mixed race studies, um, so which is a very much underexplored area in the uh, philosophy of race, where many of the standard accounts of race, which tends to be the sorts of ones that say that we there's the assignment of social significance to particular biological features that are evident of, you know, having some geographical ancestry or whatever, they tend not to do a good job of making sense of the category mixed race people. Um, and so part of the project that I'm going to do is use the conceptual engineering framework that I develop in my thesis to offer an account of what mixed race identity should be. Um, and I think it should be in some sense like a super ordinal category in the sense that it's not like black and white. Um, it's a category that's called mixed race of which we should have multiple different types of consciousness depending on your mixed race possibilities. So there should be a Filipino-Australian consciousness or something like that, or there should be um, an indigenous white consciousness or something like that. Um, So yeah, that's the project that I'll do and hopefully I'll get to do it next year. Oh, do you finish your PhD really soon? In February, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's really... It's really exciting. How long have you been doing it for? I think it'll be four years in February. Um, And it's been great. You know, I mean, I want to say, I mean, as much as it is difficult, I do want to give off the impression that it's actually something that is incredibly fulfilling. The Melbourne Uni paying you to save? Yeah, yeah. yeah, (laughs) This uh, this podcast is brought to you by the University (laughs) of Melbourne. Um, No, it is incredibly fulfilling, provided that you can find yourself in the right community of people. Mm. If you don't, it's 
going to be a nightmare. And so that's why it's like, when you do philosophy, don't think of it as a kind of independent pursuit. It's something you engage in a particular community. You throw yourself into it as early as possible. Um, yeah, like going to the major conference, or the Australasian Association Philosophy Conference each year. Just go to it and enjoy it. And, you know, it'll be awkward for a while, but eventually you'll find your feet and you'll be part of that community. Mm. Hmm. What about you, Kelly? Have you been like, are you like, have you had bad experiences with writing a hundred thousand word things? Are you- <laughs> no, not at all. So, um, the longest piece I've done is like 10,000 words for honesty. Sure, so that's pro- pretty long. Yeah, it, it is pretty long. I, I find it, um, I'm more comfortable in that range, I think, just because there is enough space within there to vibe it out and then like hit your stride and then, um, kind of touch on topics that you might that are very interesting but you normally would have to cut out if you were doing a shorter piece so um yeah i i enjoy doing those um uh, but no nothing like a phd at mm. all. no mm. you'll you both enjoy it when you get to it <laughs> i promise you you'll like it there's so much like if if we get to oh it. You'll yeah there'll be no problem at all but there's so much legacy <laughs> just to do whatever you want so that's the kind of nice thing moving from undergraduate into postgraduate stuff mm. is that you're less constrained by a syllabus um but that's also scary because it's kind of like oh shit i'm by myself now my supervisor is there but typically they just yell at me so um so yeah so it's kind of fun but it's also kind of daunting mm. yeah hmm Cool. Okay. Well, we've gone for a little while. Hour and hour and twenty something minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. How are you? How are you both feeling? Anything? Any ground that you want to cover that we haven't covered? Um. Anything? I think we've covered. Yeah, I don't think everything so. that I thought we might. Yeah. Um, are you happy with the responses? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I think, yeah. Okay. Cool. I really am. Will be more exciting than Peter Singer. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well hey thanks for talking with me um where can people where can people find your stuff and everything yeah so they can find map just by uh searching on facebook map melbuni and you'll find us there we also have a wordpress website which we don't use that often so i would recommend going through um the facebook page but if you don't have facebook if you go on if you just google map melbuni you'll find it there and you can sign up to the mailing list which we need to use more often probably um if you want to find public articles that i've written you can go to my website kellyherbison.com um and i also do work through a local zine verve and you can find some of my writing there um and some other exciting local voices uh, at vervezine.com. So if people want to uh, follow up on anything that we've said, they can get in contact with Map Melbuni via email at mapmelbuni at gmail.com or you can check out our Facebook page. You just have to um, search Map Melbuni on Facebook and you can find us there. Um, we also have a website, mapmelbuni.wordpress.com and if you go on there, you can sign up to our mailing list to um, stay up to date with everything that we're doing if you want to um, get in contact with me or see anything that i'm doing you can head to my website kellyherbison.com yeah and if you want to uh find any of my public work uh it's also it's on uh paulpadoski.com and also my uh, published philosophy work i think my penultimate drafts are all on my website as well and so there are a number of different topics depending on what people's interests are um, which, but all includes social philosophy and conceptual engineering. 
cool well thank you once again you've thank been really generous you. with your time and ideas and language and and brains so thanks so much i had thank a really nice time us. thanks cool cool Ooh.